We're in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. We just uh, began that last time. Um, I don't know, Glenn, I don't know if the guys can see what I wrote on the board. I suspect they can. But uh, what I did is I drew a line, a horizontal line on the board, and put at the top of the horizontal line the word tribulation and put it in quotation marks. Yeah. And then I put a horizontal line on either end of the, the, uh, the, uh, or a vertical line on the other side of either side of the, the horizontal line. Jesus called this period of time the tribulation. That's the term he gives to it. That's why we call it the tribulation. The time frame for this period comes from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, which I also wrote on the board. So, it seems to me that this um, this is important for us as we study what is really called here in Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse of Jesus, that we kind of have a, a framework, a, a line, vertical and two horizontal lines, horizontal and two vertical lines, is probably the best way to think about it. And so what I want to try to do is just talk about what Jesus says in answering the questions of his disciples. Because when Jesus talked about this here on the Olivet Discourse during Passion Week from Hollywood, Jesus knew this. These disciples have read Daniel. These disciples know the Old Testament. And so for us, reading it 2,000 years later, we must really have under our belt what Daniel 9, 24 through 27 teaches. And we must really, it could be much broader than that, we should understand all that Daniel teaches in chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, 11, and 12. We, this is not a course on Daniel, so we're not going to do all that. <laughs> but it, there's a framework there that is implicit in understanding what Jesus is saying. And then the other thing about this passage is in the middle of the passage, which you'll see is verse 14. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Jesus says exactly the same thing. An abominable one who desolates, the abomination of desolation will appear. He will be a godlike figure who will try to imitate God, imitate Christ. First John 2.18 gives him a name. He's called the Antichrist. That's the only time in the scriptures called that. In Revelation 13, he's called the beast. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's called the lawless one. In Daniel 7, he's called the little horn. I mean, all of those need, you've got to go back and look at the context. But they're all talking about the same person. So we're not going to go through all of those. But when Jesus talks about this, because he's answering the questions of the disciples, his assumption is, and I think it would have been a correct one, they know what I'm talking about, because he says, as Daniel said, and then he, he refers to that. And so it, the ignorance of 21st century evangelicals is they haven't studied all this well. So you, you're just overwhelmed by this, and you go to Revelation, you have no idea how to study Revelation. Revelation 6 through 18, which is really the chapters that deal with the tribulation, can really only be understood if you spent time on all these other things. And that's what's hard for most people. So with all these introductory comments, um, we covered this last week, but it's real quick. Uh, Jesus has just finished 
what we had read about in chapter 12, where he was on Temple Mount, remember the widows, mites, and all of those things. So he moves out of the Temple Mount, like he goes through the Eastern Gate, walks down the Kidron Valley, and goes up the Mount of Olives. That's to the east of the Temple, Temple Mount. And so it's a, it's a beautiful sight, actually, and they would look across the valley to the temple, and the guys say, oh, aren't they wonderful buildings, wonderful stuff? Jesus says, guys, I'm telling you, not one stone is going to be left upon another. And that, it, it, you, you and I have a real sense, well, we know that because that's what happened in August of 87. And General Titus destroyed Jerusalem and his soldiers burned the temple. And to find, get the gold and all the precious stuff that was melting from the intense heat, they just start throwing the stones off the Temple Mount. And if you ever go to Jerusalem on the west side, you will see those stones. They preserved them. They've kept a whole pile of them there. We know, exa we know exactly what he's talking about because that was a historical event that occurred. So it's just imagine what these guys would have thought. They're, they're, they're processing this. What? I mean, they look across the valley and they see this absolutely incredible temple. On 39, the Temple Mount is 39 acres, this massive plaza, and they're saying, he's saying it's going to be destroyed, not on stone. And so these guys then, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, I'm in verse 3, pull him aside privately and say, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so their questions, their questions, indicate that they're thinking about end time stuff. Because when you read the prophecies of the Old Testament, it talks about those things occurring, destruction and doom. There's a little phrase in the Old Testament that's used over and over again, it's day of the Lord. It's a time of judgment. And so they're thinking, oh, he's talking about that. And so they ask him those questions. And so Jesus begins to answer chapter, uh, in verse 5, begins to answer their questions. But he chooses to answer the second question first. And so what he reviews from verse 3, when he begins, or verse, really verse 5, when he begins to answer their questions through verse 13, he is giving us a, this is not tight-knit chronology, He's just saying, these are the things that are going to happen. And when you see these things, when you see these things happening, then you know that the end is near. And so these would all be things, events, occurrences, that are occurring in this first block before you get to the middle. Because Daniel's various prophecies, 2, 7, 8, and then in 9, tell us there's going to be there are, there's going to be a seven-year period. We'll start going into all that, and I'm going to do that. And he says, there's going to be a middle point in that seven-year period when this abominable one is going to try to foster worship of himself. So that comes from that. It's all over the place in Daniel. So again, Jesus is assuming they uh, know that, because he'll bring it up in verse 13, uh, 14. So as we go through this, I want you to see if you can, with me, see if you can identify six very specific things that Jesus itemizes that will characterize this period. And as you, you read them, you say, well, <clears throat> that's kind of always been a part of human history. 
We've always had these things, but these are all intensified. And so what you would look, now again, I, this is not a course on prophecy where we're dealing with every book of the Bible that deals with this. But the things that are described here, you would see in the, in the, the seal judgments of, there are seven of those, the seal judgments that you see in Revelation chapter six. So that would correspond with this. And so, and again, um, any study that is even cursory of the Olivet Discourse is gonna point that out. And so Jesus is just saying, these are the things that you look for because you ask about the sign of these things being accomplished. Okay, I'm telling you, <clears throat> many will come in, I'm in verse uh, uh, six, in verse five, I should start there. Jesus began to say, see that no one leads you astray. So that's the very first thing he says. So what, what, does, that, what does that imply? Well, it implies some things that are really developed in Revelation, but also Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew's account in that chapter 24 of Matthew, he uses a word that in this very short account, Mark doesn't uh, give us that. It's the word deceive. Over and over again, Jesus says, do not be deceived, do not be deceived, do not be deceived, do not be deceived. So Mark captures it in one phrase. See to it that no one leads you astray. Okay, now what is he talking about here? Well, you have to go to see it much more fully explained to, for example, material that's in Revelation 6, 7, 8, 9, but then you get to 13, where it talks about the beast. And the beast is going to do signs and wonders. That's the phrase that's used. The phrase signs and wonders is used of whom? Of Jesus. We've read about those in our study of the Gospel of Mark. He, it says that he does these signs, he does these wonders, signs and wonders. In the book of Acts, the early chapters, chapter one, it talks about signs and wonders of Jesus. And you see the apostles doing signs and wonders. They're messianic miracles to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. So the beast is going to do, quote, messianic miracles, close quote, to prove what? That he's the Messiah. He is called a false Christ. Jesus will say, don't be deceived when all these people say, Messiah is here, Messiah is here, Messiah is here. He says, don't believe it. Well, I don't believe it. Because I'm the Messiah. I've come. I've completed my work. And it's really another fascinating thing about these accounts. And we're going to read about it much later. Jesus will say, if I didn't come back, even the elect would be deceived. Even those during the tribulation period who come to know Christ, even they would be deceived. So we, you, you cannot minimize how effective Satan's final strategy is going to be. Because anti-Christos, anti-Christ, anti is a little prefix, can mean against. But normally in the Greek language of the first century, it meant instead of. So he's an instead of Christ. He's a false Christ. But he's going to be so close that people are going to be deceived. So Jesus says, see to it, no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead you many astray. And there, again, that is just developed in a major way in the book of Revelation. But it's in uh, Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24, 
where Jesus says a numerous time, do not be deceived, do not be deceived, do not be deceived. And you know this from your study, like of Genesis 3, for example. The primary weapon of, of Satan is deception, to deceive you. And he's at work in the life of unbelievers to deceive them, to doubt the Lord, et cetera, et cetera, which is what he used to see in doing with Eve. With unbelievers to deceive them that they have bought the truth in terms of adhering to his lies. So that's the first characteristics of this period. Massive, thoroughgoing deception. Don't be led astray. Number two. Verse seven, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. And again, you, you, you would just see, well, good night. <laughs> History, in about 5,200 years of recorded history, whenever you study history, one of the major things you study is what? Wars. <laughs> that's how nations become great. That's how nations build empires. I mean, it's just war is a major characteristic of humanity and reason for that. So you're, you're saying, well, wait a minute. But you again, read Revelation 6, the seal judgment. And what Jesus, excuse me, John, John writing of Revelation, and the, the, the angel is directing him, and the seals are being opened by Jesus, the Son, and these seals are judgments poured out upon the earth. So this is not going to be just regional wars where there's a war in Syria, it's a civil war, or you know, there's a war in the Korean Peninsula, or I mean, anything you can think of that have been in history. This is worldwide, because in these three and a half years, the beast is consolidating his power. He will become virtually the ruler of the world. And then the last three and a half years, that starts to blow apart. And that what he has built begins to come apart, which is what leads to the campaign of Armageddon. He's just going to deal with that specific stuff. That's in Revelation. So the, the issue of war and rumors of wars is this is worldwide. This is worldwide military conflict as the beast is consolidating his power. And so it's if you read in Revelation 6, remember you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Remember that? And one of those horsemen is the war, one of war, the second one actually. And so you you just see all this. Okay, so it isn't gonna be just what we're used to in studying history. This is massive worldwide conflict. And the rumors of it, because nations are going to be building and trying to de defend themselves against the beast and all of that, and he's just going to overwhelm everybody. Number three. Uh, well, I didn't read verse eight. For a nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. So, okay, that, that just is what we were talking about. Now, the third item, there will be earthquakes in various places. And again, you say, well, I'm kind of used to that. You hardly can go through a year where you don't hear somewhere, somewhere on planet Earth, earthquakes. I remember a number of years ago, I was sitting in my family room on a Saturday morning reading. And all of a sudden, I felt kind of something rolling through the house. And we have a, we have a sliding doors in our family room that goes out to the back porch. And I saw the blinds in that sliding door rippling. And I yelled to Peggy, 
honey, I think we just had an earthquake. <laughs> and if you, I don't know if you remember that, I forget how many years ago it was, but there was an earthquake in central Oklahoma and it rolled through the Great Plain in Nebraska. I mean, it was just, but it was really, it was really something to see because that meant the earth is just rolling. I mean, it just, it's really, it was really a remarkable thing to experience. It was so little. It only was, I don't know, two seconds or something, three seconds. And I'm only saying that because that isn't what Jesus is talking about. But these are massive earthquakes. And again, in the seal judgments, in Revelation 6, in the seal judgments, you see massive earthquakes. And as you read this, what is, what is happening is the topography of planet Earth is being remade. And again, that, that's, the, that's the, the nature of this devastation. Number four, there will be famines. Now, that, again, those, those things are all connected. When there's lots of war and there's lots of natural disasters, natural disasters, there's going to be famine. So these are all connected. But again, this isn't, you know, right now they're telling us that in parts of Afghanistan, because of what has happened, there are, there's famine. They're not sure how they're going to get through the winter. Okay, well, that's because of military conflict and all the crazy stuff that's going on there. But this is a result of those other, the wars, and then the, the natural disasters, naturally famine. But then Jesus says something. These are but the beginning of the birth pain. And again, if you look at Revelation chapter 4, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that's just the beginning of the tribulation period. It's just getting started. And, and so these common historical aspects of human history are exacerbated and intensified as jesus says in the book of uh, matthew 24 there has never been anything like this in human history so these are normal things in human history we, we know about in recorded history but there's an intensity to this and this is just the beginning then Number not verse nine is the is the the fifth characteristic. It is persecution. And again, when you study this in light of what you see in, in, in Daniel chapter seven, or what you see in Revelation thirteen and following, is the beast is going to take out after those who will not worship him. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake. And Jesus is kind of covering all bases there. But one factor that also characterizes the beast is he will be a monstrous anti-Semite. He will hate the Jews. And he will try to destroy the Jews because it is during this period that Jews are going to come to faith in Christ on a massive scale. And so those who trust Christ during the tribulation, Gentiles, as well as Jews, so Antichrist, because they will not do what he wants them to do, which is bow down to him and so on. So Jesus is just saying, again, there's always been persecution, the last 2,000 years of church history. There's been horrific persecution of the church. But again, this is intensified. And the, the, the revelation material gives us some numbers that are associated with this. 
and the, the, the scriptures give us an insight into the throne room of God, where the martyrs from the tribulation, when will you avenge us, O Lord? When will you take care of what is happening? And Jesus, in effect, says, be patient. I'm going to take care of it. And then number seven, which in a sense is the most optimistic aspect of this, and the gospel must be first proclaimed to all the nations. And so in the midst of this persecution, and then in verse 11, he goes back to the persecution. He's saying that in the middle of this, the gospel being proclaimed. Now, Revelation chapter 7 tells us one of the major energizing forces of this proclamation of the gospel. It's 144,000. They will be, you know, you'll, you have to again study all that together, but when you look at Revelation chapter 7, what, what John is learning there from, from the angel who is proclaiming this to him is that the Lord Jesus will choose 12,000 from each one of the 12 tribes to be his representatives during this period. And I don't know if you can do math, but 12 times 12,000 is going to equal 144,000. And they will be the shock troops of the gospel. They will take the gospel to the world. Now, and he said, well, that has been going on. It's going on right now. But again, if, if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, the church has been raptured before all the start, then the, ener the energizing force of gospel proclamation are these 144,000. No matter where you put the, the rapture issue, these are still the shock troops. These are the key to what Christ is going to do during this period. And enormous numbers of people are going to come to faith. The population of heaven is going to shoot up because of the tribulation. But it's also going to result in massive catastrophe. Where is the Holy Spirit during this period? Doing the same thing he does now. Convicting people, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Causing them to make a decision of faith, energizing them once they. But if the church is gone, and again, that depends on where you put the rapture, but if the church is gone, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit ceases his activity, because he still continues his activity and his work. But it's that it's that presence of the church and its salt and light function that comes to that. Okay, so Jesus has itemized six key events, development signs, whatever term you want to use. And when they bring you to trial, verse 11, deliver them over, don't be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Get in there. So I want to answer Fred's question too. The Holy Spirit remains active, and brother will deliver, brother over to death, father his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, is a part of that persecution and the horror of what's going on is all interpersonal relationships just break down because it's such a period of distrust and fear. And as he's, he's very explicit there in verse 12, we're going to have members of the family betraying one another. And again, when you, you read the stuff that's in Revelation 13 particularly, and it's the intensity of what the beast is going to be doing, and his sidekick, which is called, who's called the false prophet, what they're doing, they're taking it out after everyone who does not bow the knee to the Antichrist. And so, again, what Jesus is saying here, 
Well, you can say, well, during Nazi Germany, that was going on all over the place. During the Soviet Union, occupation of the Central European states, Hungary, Budapest, uh, Hungary, and uh, Bulgaria, and Romania, and Poland, all that was going on, Germany. But this is now worldwide, and it's intensified. And for you and me today, with all the computer technology, you, know, you don't have much difficulty understanding how they're going to be able to track people down. But he says, one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, don't stumble over that. This isn't a change in the salvation program where you have to earn this. But saved is in the sense of delivered in, the, in terms of the final aspect of salvation, which is the return of Christ, receiving the resurrected body, all of those things that are part of the victorious triumph of Christ coming back to earth. So it's a motivation. Don't give up. And this, is, this would be for those tribulation saints who will experience all this in a, to a degree that has, has not ever been experienced on, on planet Earth. Jim, uh, it, it just seems like the knowing that these things will come, but not knowing when they will come, it really is important for the leadership of a family to share Christ with their children and yeah. then with their grandchildren sure. so that they come to that saving knowledge. Because if they come to that saving knowledge, he will be with them to the end, the very end, right? Sure. They won't, I mean, they can't once they receive Christ as their savior, they can't lose <coughs> pressure and persecution and, and things of that nature. They will be able to endure. But it is also the command to endure. You make a decision to persevere, but God is the one who also enables. That's the divine sovereignty, human responsibility. You persevere. That's you have that commitment, but God also gives you the enablement to persevere. That's railroad track. Uh, that's so important in, in commands like this. All right, now, again, it is, it's a little, it, you know, I've talked to this many times. It's always a little frustrating because it's like, well, why doesn't he go into a long discourse and all the stuff is in Revelation? Mainly because there is the book of Revelation. Now, you can go and study it. But he's given the highlights. That's all he has done of what this is going to look like. And then verse 14 is, is quite strategic. Because this comes from the material in Daniel, not only Daniel 9, but other, because Daniel 9, uh, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8, and then Daniel 10 gives us the time frame of this. This is seven years, and there's going to be a middle in that seven-year period. And that's three and a half years. In the book of Daniel, it's measured in days, and it's measured in months. There is no question what is going on here. And so Jesus says, but when, I'm in verse 14 now. Now remember, that, notice that begins with a, a word of contrast. It's a strong adversative. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Now, if you would not, and again, Jesus assumed that his disciples knew this, and the writer of Scripture assumes you and I know it 2,000 years later, and the Holy Spirit assumes you know it. But this is midpoint of the tribulation. 
And the abominable one who desolates, that's kind of an idiom from the Hebrew language that's translated into to Greek here and now translated in English. This is a reference to that, okay, I'm going to go through all the names. In Daniel chapter 7, the little horn. In Daniel chapter 11, the willful king. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, calls him the abominable one who desolates. 25, 26, and 27. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he's called the lawless one. And in Revelation 13, he's called the beast. In all of those passages that I just cited, in all of those passages, it says he sets up worship of himself in the temple, and he demands that everyone worship him. That's why he's called the abominable one, Hebrew idiom is, the abominable one who brings about desolation, which that's kind of a mouthful, but that's in Daniel chapter 9, the end of the chapter, 24, 25, 26, 27. This abominable one who brings desolation, who sets up worship, he wants to be like God. He's arrogant. He, in, in all of those passages I just went over, he blasphemes God, and he sets up worldwide worship of himself. And if you do not worship him, you will pay a price for not worshiping him. And so all that Jesus is saying in the first half of verse 14, see all these other passages of Scripture. But again, when Jesus says this, and his disciples, are, he's responding to their questions, he knew that they had studied this. Because he doesn't, do you remember? He just says, when you see this, so that's Daniel. That's Daniel. Okay, when you see this, we are not, what do you mean? What, well, Matthew's account in Matthew 24, 15 is even more explicit, setting up himself to be worshipped. And then these other passages, it's worldwide worship. This is incredibly arrogant individual. But he is the anti-Christo. He's the false Christ instead of Christ. He's Satan's Christ. That's the best way to say it. he is Satan's Christ. And the false prophet that is like his sidekick is like almost the Holy Spirit. And it could be argued from Revelation 13 that Satan actually incarnates the Antichrist. And so what do you have? You have a false trinity. And so it's just, it's a remarkable, it's just why it's so important to understand why what Christ is saying here is not just this is what's always had in human history. This is a unique, unbelievable, because it's the end, it's Satan throwing his best shot at God now. This is his last shot, because he's read the Bible. He knows what's <laughs> going to happen to him. Yeah. So this figure is already on the scene. He's been on the scene for the previous three and a half years, right? That's correct. He doesn't just appear here. No, that's He's correct. He's been on the scene. That's correct. He begins, to, he begins to reveal himself at the beginning of the year. Drawing people to himself, building consensus. Or the book of Daniel tells us that apparently he comes from a reconstituted, reconfigured Mediterranean empire. And he has, at this point in time, a lot of Jews on his side, quote-unquote, or is it just 
Or well, who, who are, who yeah, it, it would it would seem at least in those. No, it's it's largely going to be because uh, even at the end time, the number of Jews in the world is going. I mean, to right now, the number of Jews in the world is eighteen million people. That's not very many people, right? and that will probably not change at the end of as we're approaching the end of time. There'll always be a very 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 small minority. So this is the the largest support of him will come from all the Gentile world, you know. And I mean, it's you get sort of the sense in those early these early descriptions, he's seemingly going to solve the world problems, and whatever that means. So he will he will put a list of what the he will have built some. He will he will have gained that confidence and trust that people will follow him, and then this again is some of the stuff that's in. Revelation or uh, Daniel chapter 11, 35 and following. Those who do not follow him willingly, he will force them to follow him militarily. So it's going to be a worldwide, and I like to just put it this way, a worldwide consolidation of his power. Those voluntarily who follow him because of he solved problems, but then those that do not. But then, as, as I said earlier, once you get past this aspect, which is what Christ is referring to, that consolidation begins to break down. Presumably, the Eastern powers break away from him, and a battle is being, a campaign is being organized in the Jezreel Valley. And that's where Armageddon will occur. But that, I mean, I, we, I just went through seven years in about three seconds. <laughs> But am I answering your question? Am I getting to what you're yeah, asking, yeah, Joel? Yeah. All right. So that's the warning. And that is, that's, it's really important, guys. I know if, if you're following me with all this, this is really important because every time you see the Olivet Discourse in 24 of Matthew, in, in, in Mark uh, 13 here, and then Luke 24, or Luke 22, excuse me, this event is the highlight. This is what you really look for. When this abominable one who brings desolation sets up worship of himself, that's the key marker. The birth pangs are over. Now you have the key marker. And so Jesus let the, let, the, understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain, let those who are in the house not go down or in his house to get anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back for his cloak. Women who are pregnant, for those nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in women. So, I mean, Jesus is saying, that's why this is the marker. When this happens, run for the hills, because he's after you. Because remember, Jesus is speaking here to those who are going to be faithful to him. Run for the hills. Are they referring to the three hills around the, the, the uh, area of Judah? Well, it, uh, I mean, there are, there are three you know, mountain peaks there in Jerusalem, on a high mountain. Probably, because of some things that you read in Revelation, it's fleeing to the east, which would be the, the, the mountains in eastern Jordan, and that's where Petra is, the old Nabataean kingdom. And I don't think I could ever prove this dogmatically, but at least circumstantially, it seems, that would be a very logical place for the Jews who have been marked up by Antichrist to be killed. They flee to, to Petra. That's almost impregnable. Now, whether or not that's accurate or not, but the flee, Jesus is saying, run, because he you are now marked. And then verse 9, for in those 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation. And so that word, 
which is used just once here in, in Mark's account. In Matthew 24, Jesus uses it a number of times. And that's why New Testament expositors have just used that as this is the title we'll give to the seven-year period, because that's what Jesus uses. And so now it's become a proper noun that is used to describe a block of time. Whether or not Jesus actually means this or not, but he just says there will be such tribulation. It has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And again, when you read Revelation 6 to Revelation 18, the seven seal judgments, followed by the seven trumpet judgments, followed by the seven bowl judgments, and you read all of that. And you read the human life that's lost, and you read the devastation, you understand what Jesus is saying. There have always been these things in human history, but there's never been anything like this. Planet Earth is going to be remade. The topography of planet Earth is going to change because of all the judgment in, in, in the book of Revelation. Over and over, the word is used, the wrath of God is being poured out on this planet. And this planet, basically, this planet is going to be destroyed. And that's why in the kingdom period, Jesus remakes and reconfigures everything that has happened as a result of this period of judgment. So, I mean, we stumble or we read over these words and maybe even stumble over them. But what Jesus is saying here is utterly profound. Don't take this lightly. And in terms of biblical revelation, this is the end of history. This is, and that's why I think it's right, this, the way it's depicted in the book of Revelation, Satan is throwing everything he can at God. His rebellion is reaching its apex, its final stages. And so through, if he, whether that's accurate or not, if he indwells Antichrist, but you have like a false trinity being presented. And as you're going to read in this next verse, and if the Lord, in verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. And the word saved does not, it doesn't mean necessarily justification. It means saved from being slaughtered. In other words, this would result in the annihilation of the human race. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, it's a word for that called grace. Even in this horrific period, God shortens it where the human race would destroy itself. And then if any, here's again this warning. And if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ. Look, there he is. Do not believe it. False Christ, false prophets will arise, perform signs and wonders. That's very strategic because that's the phrase used in the book of Revelation. He will mimic Jesus. And with the power of Satan, he will effectively mimic Jesus. It would lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I told you all these things beforehand. <laughs> I have often wondered, when those disciples heard Jesus teach all this, what in the world <laughs> were they thinking about? I mean, by, I mean, every time I read and study, my head's spinning. These guys are saying, What? Oh, Jesus, would you go back and start over? I'm trying to take notes here. I mean, this is an unbelievable amount of information. But again, 
I want to just remind you of a couple of things. His assumption is they know the book of Daniel. And his assumption is they've read the prophets where the day of the Lord is talked about. Because all of these things that Jesus has talked about in this, this uh, all of the discourse, he's using the language of the day of the Lord in Amos and Joel and Isaiah and all of that. These words of judgment and devastation. The day of the Lord gives us the language of prophecy, the language of judgment. And that's what Christ is, is doing here. Jim, yeah, sorry fast interrupt. There's at least as I read it in this passage, there's not a rapture of believers that's at correct. that time. Is that's that true? true? When, where, where Jesus, is, that's right. Jesus is that outside is, of these boundaries. Well, you're that's really really a good question, uh, Joel, because the event of the rapture is discussed very clearly and very explicitly in First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, which we studied several years ago here. But so that event is described, it's clear, but what it does not do there, and it's, you don't see it, there's no timeline of all this in Scripture. And that's one of the reasons why it's controversial. But, um, if you probably know this, but there's some who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, there's some who believe in a mid, right in the middle, and there's some who believe at the end, post-trib. In other words, the rapture occurs, and as soon as the rapture occurs, Jesus comes back in Revelation 19. So there's nothing in between. That's one view that's probably not really widespread. And then there's a variation of mid-trap uh, Rosenberg came up with back in 1991, the pre-wrath rapture, which Bob soon became a convert to that. He and I had a lot of conversation about that. Because he had been preacher, but he was so convinced by that book, that's what he began to teach, which is fine. But, you know, Joel... Um, one of the things that is somewhat compelling is from Revelation 6 to Revelation 18, the church is not mentioned. Because the rapture is the church being taken out of the world. And so if the, if the church is not mentioned, now an argument from silence is never a strong argument. But that is some, okay, you would think, you would think that the church would be mentioned because it's all over the place in the epistles of the New Testament. It's the key institution during this era. And if it's not mentioned, where is it? Secondly, in the book of First uh, Thessalonians 5 and in, in, in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, Paul says, we believers of the church are not destined for wrath. And then others have said, okay, every time God pours out horrific judgment, flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, what does he do with believers? He takes them out. And so he took Noah and his family out. He took even Lot, even though he was a terrible guy, you know, he's not a role model. He apparently was a believer, and God rescued him. And so it's just all of those things seem to me, Joel, to point to that rapture event occurs here. And it is the key event that sets off what the Old Testament language and what Jesus sets off the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord isn't a 20, it's a block of time. And so that's my position, Joel, that, that rapture, because it isn't mentioned, Jesus doesn't discuss it. He doesn't even talk about it here. He doesn't talk about the church. And the book of Revelation 6 through 18 doesn't talk about the church. 
it just seems at least somewhat reasonable that we can conclude we are delivered from this wrath to come, which is what this is. So. Well, you may have just answered it because you said your position's getting the biggest criticism I've heard of that is that's a, an American thought because we're too weak to have. understand the spirit what you're saying that's not a biblical critique <laughs> you don't exegete the scripture based on but that is that is part of the challenge though because uh i mean I, i've done some reading in this those who come in from africa and asia say we are not seeing some of this stuff the way you westerners do. right we are used to persecution correct we're used to deprivation and so you know, there's some of the silly stuff like prosperity theology and all that comes out of the West. They're saying, where does that come from? Because they say, oh, we don't see that in the Bible. We don't see it anything. We, what we see is you're going to follow Jesus. Jesus, be ready to be persecuted. Right. Be ready to lose your home. Be ready. That's what they've experienced. And that's the kind of hardship I to be. Yeah, I know that. I know that. I know. And that is, that is, that honestly is, and that's what we then call, that's in a hermeneutic. It's how do we interpret what is it? Because anytime you interpret anything, you have a, a grid. You have a set of presuppositions that sort of govern how you look at things, whether it's cultural or wherever you come from, your family. And, that's, and that is really hard when you're interpreting scripture. You must work hard to divorce yourself from that stuff. You have to be, and that's why historical, literal, grammatical interpretation of scripture is the key. You dig into all this. To do the best you can for separate yourself from all your presuppositions, all your cultural baggage. I don't want to read this as an American. Because, you know, the people who read this were from Asia. Because remember, the Middle East is Southwest Asia. If you look at geography, that's what it is. And so they're, they're more, there's more of an Oriental Eastern way of thinking of things. That really is the background for the Old Testament and the background in the background for just um, that was kind of important. So I don't know what I was going to say. In the background, though. So I mean that, yeah, and, and that is that's just it's it's really important to do the best we can to do that. And when when I was in graduate school and so on, they, they put us through a number of things to try to help us to do that. But that is really difficult to do that sometimes. <clears throat> That's a really good comment. Was that a Dallas? <laughs> well, that's where I studied, so don't put a label on it. No, no, no. <laughs> no, that's all right. It's like anyway. historical crap. Verse 24. What's the first word? But. But. <laughs> In those days after that tribulation. Again, it's, that's one of the reasons why we we tend to make this into a proper noun that makes it the descriptive word of this block of time. Because Jesus, where is Jesus now? He's at the end. After all this has happened, but in those days after the decision, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will be falling from heaven, 
Powers in the heavens will be shaken. This is day of the Lord language. This is all the stuff that accompanies the return of Jesus Christ to earth. And then you will see, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. This is Revelation 19 in one phrase. This is the return of Jesus Christ to earth as a victorious King of kings and Lord of lords. And again, you read in Revelation 19, what is he going to do? He's going to come back into Mount of Olives, head, head west, go into Temple Mount, claim it for his father, head north to the Valley of Jezreel, grab the Antichrist, grab the false prophet, and throw them into the lake of fire. It's exactly what happens, and will then defeat and vanquish all of those enemies at that battle. He will then send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And that is it's comparable to what Christ talks about in, Revel in Matthew 24 and 25, also in Revelation chapter 19. And so Jesus has just, just finished answering the question. He's given them an incredibly broad overview of this with that marker in the middle. When you see that, that's very important. And then he answers, but when I come back, and it's really fascinating that he says, the way he says it, then they will see. And it, it's in Revelation 19, it's very clear. All the world is going to see Christ return. And you say, well, if he comes back in Jerusalem. <laughs> you know, oh, I see it. Yeah. Well, you know, that's not hard for us. I mean, you can see it with this. You know, so, <laughs> I mean, it's just it, it'll be worldwide. But it also, in Matthew's gospel, he says, like, the lightning starts from the east and goes to the west. It goes from the west to the east. You never miss that. And, you know, we have had some. And when there's light, you can't miss it. You're falling asleep. It wakes you up. You see it. It lights up your room. Well, that's a ridiculous analogy. But Jesus is saying it will be so in, so distinguishable. You will never miss it. Nobody's going to say, I wonder what's happening. No, I mean, it's going to be so clear. And what this means is Jesus Christ is coming back to earth to put down the rebellion. It's over. And he gathers his elect from scattered because of all that's happened. And that's then Revelation, Matthew 25, verse 15 and following, tells us that Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. All living human beings will be separated. Those who are the sheep will enter his kingdom. Those who are goats, you know, that's a figure of speech, metaphor, but those who are goats will go into everlasting, everlasting judgment. Okay. Uh, I have a comment or just yeah. a question. Uh, when we see this, um, we can bring that to the present time and see how important it is to share Christ with other people. So they don't suffer any of this, even if it is beyond their life. They wouldn't. But just to know that it could be, to, re to have them make that decision so that they don't go through this or have the power to go through it and sustain themselves in his power. Make. Well, that's right. I mean, this is, it, it can be effective. Uh, again, if you, you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture and 
you are live and the rapture occurs at, uh, at 10 minutes after one this afternoon, you and I will be gone, but those we witness to and talk to. Uh, I have a number of friends in, uh, in Israel and so on that they just won't acknowledge Jesus the Messiah. But this one guy is a really good friend of mine. He's so close. I mean, he, he talks about the Bible. He's read the New Testament. He knows everything about it. But he said, I just I will not believe Jesus the Messiah. Well, he's one of those guys. He is so smart and so energized. I just think, you know, I wonder what tribe you're going to He's going to be one of 144,000. He's going to come to faith in Christ. Now, that is Jim Ekman's ridiculous interpretation and application of that. That is absolutely wrong to do what I just did. But it, the, the negative side of that is, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people who hear the message, and then if it is preacher Bramshire, that is going to be a motivation for them to come to faith in Christ. But as we've just read, you come to faith in Christ during this period of time, you will be persecuted. The likelihood of martyrdom is very high. And so, I mean, that's what Christ is saying uh, here, among other things, and in the reading of Revelation. Okay. All right, now, um, it's approaching a quarter of, I better get done here. To set us up for next week, if you look at verse 28, and then you look at the uh, verse 32, Jesus does two things here. Number one, he tells a parable of a fig tree. We have to interpret what that means. Why is he doing this? And then secondly, next week, we want to look at verse 32, where Jesus gives a warning. Don't try and set a time limit to this. Don't try to start looking for, because Jesus says, no one knows. And so that's why, and I want to talk about that quite a bit next week, but that's why I, I get a little frustrated sometimes with Christians asking me all kinds of questions about, and I say, this is, I always quote this first, please don't bother me with that question because I don't know. And Jesus really wisely says, don't try to figure it out. Your business is to proclaim the gospel. Yeah. You know, I, you've been around people, do you think such and such is Antichrist? No, I don't know, but you shouldn't even try to figure that out. But first of all, if you believe in a preacher of rapture, it won't matter to you. But two, Jesus says, don't, don't focus on that stuff. And that is really frustrating me sometimes. I, I remember, oh, goodness. I remember when I was in Pennsylvania, there was a guy who was absolutely convinced that Henry Kissinger was the answer. <laughs> I mean, he had all these. He, he made lists. This is why. He <laughs> and I reminded him. Just I don't want to talk about. You do remember that Henry Kissinger is a Jew. You yeah. remember that. Right? Well, it doesn't say that Antichrist could be a Jew. Well, let's talk about the ball score last night. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. I'm gonna pray. Father, thank you for um, the the Word of God. Thank you for this passage which we studied, and a very short Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse of Jesus. This is really important. This is um, just Jesus telling us, the Father and I have a plan. The Holy Spirit is energizing power, carrying out this plan on planet Earth. And uh, we're working that plan, and this is the end. This is what it's going to look like. And when I come back, no one, no one will say, who is this? What's going on? 
throughout the world, my coming back will be indistinguishable. It will be, everyone will see it. Everyone will know. And that will be the end because Jesus will crush the rebellion and usher in his kingdom, which Revelation 20 tells us will be a thousand years. So Lord, these are exciting things. It reminds us of what is really important. Be ready and be faithful. You do not know when I'm coming back. And that is to stimulate us. That's one of the reasons God gives us prophetic scripture, to help us be ready and to help us to be faithful because we don't know. And so, Lord, I just commit all this to you. Be with these men here and in, on, online. Help them to be strong, strong men of faith. Committed to you to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen.